Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, well, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. We're starting a new series uh, in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible uh, on your phone, in paper, I don't know what other options you're going to have. But if you have a Bible, open up to Colossians. It's after Philippians, before Thessalonians. Uh, it's only four chapters, so don't skip too fast. Uh, you'll find it there. Uh, we're going to be there this morning in Colossians chapter 1. You know, when reading books in the New Testament, it can be really easy to sometimes start reading it and be like, man, this seems like the random meanderings of some dude who had a platform that he just wanted to write to somebody or like a collection of meaningful thoughts. Like when we separate it out from the context that it was written in. Uh, But it's helpful just to kind of ground ourselves in how they were written, that they were Every single book of the New Testament, including the Gospels, were written to specific people in specific cities who were dealing with specific issues, and they were written by specific people who knew about those issues and wanted to write to them to clarify things, to help them to understand the message of Jesus. And the fact that those specific letters are still applicable to our lives is kind of nothing short but a gift from God. Like that, if I wrote you a letter, I guarantee it is not going to be applicable to anybody in 2,000 years. Like it is going to look random at that point, right? Uh, So as we begin to dig into Colossians, it's just helpful to recognize kind of what the town of Colossi, Colossi, I don't know, something like that, what it actually was. It, it was a Roman town. It wasn't a huge town. Uh, and Paul didn't actually start the church that he's writing to, which a lot of them he did, but he knew about it. But it was a town religiously that was very syncretist, which means that it was very common for people to take religious practices and ideas from a wide range of sources and to mix them all together. So the way that this looked was that like Jewish folks would often look at some of the Roman temple practices and be like, well, that's interesting. Eating a little pork. No, no. Uh, uh, that's an interesting way to do it. Like that. I'll, I'll add that to what I'm doing. Or uh, the Roman folks would see the way that the Christians were worshiping and they'd be like, I like that. I'll add that to what I'm doing at the temple for Artemis. Or the Christians would see what the Jewish folks or the Roman folks were doing and say, that's interesting. I like that. What if I add that in to the way that I'm worshiping God? Which is problematic. And this was starting to happen in the young church in Colossae. And so it was to them that Paul wrote this letter to say, time out. You can't add extras to the message of Jesus. And so when we look at Paul's big idea for this church, here's what it is. It's that as a follower of Jesus, no part of human existence should remain untouched by the loving and liberating rule of Jesus. 
As a follower of Jesus, no part of the human existence should remain untouched by the loving and liberating rule of Jesus. Or to say it another way, Jesus changes everything. But what does that actually mean? So I was thinking about that, and, and I thought about when our daughters first moved in, and I've told this story on myself before, but it fits. Uh, so when they first moved in about five years ago, I had lots of bad habits that had to change. You've had, you know, anybody who's had kids realizes that when they reach a certain age, they start watching everything you do, and all of a sudden you're like, oh shoot, that one can't be modeled. Like, I don't want that thing being thrown at me later on. Uh, so, you know, our space changed, and lots of it disappeared. Uh, and our time changed, and most of that disappeared as well. Um, and. My preferences didn't change, but they just had to not be as important. Um, and the food that I ate had to change. I didn't realize that this was a thing, but it is a thing, I guess. So the, the junk food that I ate, that had to kind of disappear a little bit because I didn't want them mimicking and mirroring the, the way I would do it. Um, so... Uh, so I, I slowly weaned myself off, but, well, it didn't actually change. It just became hidden. That's actually what happened. So what I did was I took it from the kitchen where I usually kept it, and I put it in my dresser right next to my bed in one of the lower drawers where, you know, that's off limits. That's dad's stuff. You know, you can't touch that stuff, right? Hidden, secret. So I would, I would go to Dollar Tree and I would buy my red vines and Reese's Pieces and my chips and I would load up and I would run home during the day or after they've already gone to bed and I'd throw it down in the drawer. This is real, real talk, confession. <laughs> like I did do this. Uh, and uh, hide it there and then when they would go to bed, I would eat it, which is great for you. Good habits. Um, hiding food and binge eating late at night. Awesome. Uh, so it looks like my behaviors were changing, but uh, Sarah knew, but the kids didn't until one day, for some reason, somebody decided that it was okay to go to dad's dresser next to his bed and look for something. I don't, I'm not going to point fingers at who said that one was okay, but they went and they opened it and they saw. And then they immediately came running out. Look what dad has! <laughs> and the game was over. Because once they know, it, it just doesn't work anymore, right? But it became this like, little game for a few months of like let's go see if dad's hiding something and so they would go and look and the stuff disappeared because it didn't work anymore so basically the problem was that i had tried to like live a certain type of life but the red vines and the Reese's pieces kept popping out in all the wrong places because they didn't fit with the shape of the life that I was saying that I was living. They couldn't fit with everything that had already been changed at that point. And so that's what the big idea was for the church in Colossae. 
that the life of a follower of Jesus will eventually be completely changed because it can't coexist together. Otherwise, you'll stop following Jesus. Because there does reach a point where the stuff just keeps popping out too much and it doesn't work. It doesn't line up. It can't fit in the same spot. There's no other way. And so as followers of Jesus, Paul is saying we need to allow Jesus to change everything in our lives, which means that we're going to look different, right? Dorothy Day uh, once said that a Christian should live in a way that doesn't make sense unless God exists. Christians should live in a way that doesn't make sense unless God exists. Uh, I listened to a, this podcast uh, by between Russell Moore and uh, David Brooks, where they were, where that was thrown out, and then they started this conversation. And, and Russell Moore said, like he just kind of posed the question, like, why do you think that people don't go to church quite as much, or that people aren't as interested in going to church? And he answered his own question, uh, as talkers do, and he said, often it's because. They don't think that we actually believe what we say we believe because the way that we live doesn't look like what we say we believe. They don't think that we actually believe because of the way that we're living. And so David Brooks responded and and he agreed. If you don't know who he is, he's a editorial writer for the New York Times and uh, the Atlantic and other things. And he uh, is Jewish, but he recently became a Christian. Um, and he had like kind of the, the, the best like conversion like ex- example story uh, because he got saved at a charismatic church where they were speaking in tongues from the platform. And then somebody got up and interpreted it. And he said that he was sitting there and he was like, that's exactly what went through my head at the same time. And like, all of a sudden he was like, okay, this is real. I'm in, you know, and like completely just grabbed him. And he said, as from his perspective, as a recently, you know, now churched, but very unchurched person, when you become a Christian, it's because you want the full disease. It's because you want the full disease. You know, when we live in ways that are different from the good news of Jesus, uh, from the reality of the cross, from the sacrificial love of Jesus, we're shortchanging those around us. And we're shortchanging ourselves. We're not shortchanging Jesus because he can win in spite of us, and I'm grateful for that. But we are shortchanging ourselves and others. And so to the church in Colossae, And thankfully to you and to I, Paul writes and he says, Jesus changes everything in your life, so live like it. I think that's a message that we need to hear and hear and hear. So we're going to read about it from Colossians chapter 1, but let's pray first. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Just make yourself known and felt in this space. I thank you for uh, on both sides of your character, that, you're, that when you cut into our lives, that there, yeah, there's conviction, but that there's also love. There's also kindness. Because you break in and you bring change in ways that we can, 
we can handle, but that leave us looking remarkably different. And I just pray this morning, Jesus, that you'll come and speak to our hearts. Help us to look more like you, to reflect you to those around us, to show your love in our world. Just thank you for your presence, for what it is that you want to do here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you got your Bible ready, or your phone, or your eyes to look at the screen, whatever you're choosing. Colossians 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. We're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which, come, which has come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He's Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. And we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're going to talk about the good news in a second, but first I want to look at verse 9 where it says that we haven't stopped praying for you and we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's a great prayer uh, to pray for ourselves, to pray for others. You know, looking at this, it, it makes, it kind of po- pokes at me a little bit because I think often we, we see that and we start to think like, well, is that for like intellect? Is that for like spiritual things? Like what is it that Paul's trying to get? Are we supposed to get smarter here? What is it that we're, because in American Christianity, we have this tendency, I don't know, you may have noticed this, we have a tendency to pit intellect against spirituality, right? Uh, and we argue about it all the time amongst ourselves. And there is some geographical realities to that. Uh, as somebody who grew up in the Midwest and now lives in New England, I could see that a little bit if I look at Facebook, uh, which I try not to most of the time. Uh, but, you know, those of us who are intellectual, like us in New England, uh, have a tendency to throw shade at folks that we feel are over-spiritualizing. You know, we say, you know, God doesn't want us to get rid of common sense and education, which is correct. We rightly assert that, and that's good. God works in that. He uses that. It's positive. But we're wrong in the fact that we're judging the way that other people work and the process that other people have gone through. And those on the other side, the spiritual, but probably slightly less traditionally educated folks, throw the shade right back 
And they rightly assert that Jesus wants us to live by faith and to, uh, you know, listen to the Spirit. But they're wrong in the way that they judge the processing of other folks. And Paul, he says this in a way that like cuts that out right away, which is beautifully. He says, this is the wrong, like these aren't two opposite sides. These are together. And the goal isn't so that you feel really, really smart and spiritual. The goal is something different. N.T. Wright wrote that Paul never plays the spiritual life uh, against intellectual understanding. For Christians to grow up in every way will include the awakening of intellectual power, the ability to think coherently and practically about God and his purposes for his people. The purpose of wisdom and understanding isn't for us to to look good, to get smarter, to be more spiritual. The purpose of it is so that we can know the complete, we can have complete knowledge of his will. That's why we're given this. And the good news is that the knowledge, the, the, the will of God isn't a secret. And that's the other place that we go a little wonky sometimes. We try and make it seem like God's will is this like secretive thing. If we can just reach it, reach this like level 99 of, of Super Mario Brothers, all of a sudden our life will be better. Like it's not a secret. God's will is the good news. It's the gospel. It's the story of what Jesus came to bring. It's his plan of salvation for people from all places, all times, all languages, all ethnicities, all to know and experience the reality of the love of God, to encounter the freedom that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives, and to encounter and be brought back to life from places of death by the resurrection power of Jesus. That's the good news. That's the will of God. And it's bigger than me, Although I often limit it to myself, right? Anybody else struggle with that a little bit? Because we pray, like this is a very common Christian prayer. God, will you show me your will for my life? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, although Cassie was. I saw Cassie. She's like, yeah, I've done that a few times. No, no. Uh, But I'm not going to ask you to admit if you prayed that prayer. Uh, It's not a bad prayer. Um, it, it's fine, but it may be limiting what it is that you already know, because there could be this implication that we don't know what the will of God is already, but we do. We don't know how it plays out. That's good. That's fair. But we do know what the will of God is. We know what he wants to come and to do in our world. So maybe, what if, what if we corrected that prayer just slightly and we said, instead of saying like, I'm clueless and I don't know what you're up to, we said, God, let me live in a way that shines your will in our world. What if we said, we already know what it is that you want to do. The question is, am I going to align my life so that it actually reflects that? to people around me? Am I going to live in a way that actually shows that I do know what your will is in our world? 
the question isn't about what his will is just for you. It's if we're allowing ourselves to be a part of what it is that he's already up to. And that may center us a little bit differently if we do that. So let's see what Paul says after he prays this for complete knowledge of his will. In verse 10 it says, Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. And all the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He's enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sin. So I said that Paul said that Jesus changes everything and he explains that a little bit. And then he says, live like it. And this is where the live like it starts to show up. He says, we're grateful for the way that you encountered Jesus. We're grateful for the will of God, for the message of Jesus. We're grateful that God's already revealed it to us. But now that we've reached this point, something has to change. It can't just stay the same. If we live as people who have learned what the will of God is, if we've allowed it to change us, if we're people who reflect the salvation reality of God's plan, if we're people who really deeply know Jesus and have allowed him to infiltrate our lives in all the best ways, then the way that we live has to honor and please the Lord. And our lives will begin to produce good fruit. That's just the way that it goes. If those things are true, then that's the result. So you want to know how to have good fruit in your life? Live out the will of God. Live into that reality. So, but what does this look like? Am I talking about like we all need to quit our jobs, move to another country, become missionaries? Like, what does this look like? How do I have good fruit in my life today in Massachusetts? You know, I was... uh, I, I thought of a story uh, that I read recently, um, or not that recent, but it stuck out to me. Um, and so it's not mine. Uh, I'll put that out there. But uh, it's a really, really good story. And I think it just shows this. And I'm actually going to read it, which I rarely do. But um, I think what it is that he has to say, it's from Pete Gregg. He wrote a book called Red Moon Rising. Um, and in it, he talks about driving through a border town in the Czech Republic uh, and coming to the edge uh, with his wife uh, and driving through a street filled with prostitutes. And this is what happened as they drove. He said, we drove sealed in our nice shiny car and every instinct cried, get out of here. The guy in front of us was curb crawling And I just wanted to accelerate smoothly away onto clean, fast highways that would take us out to a clean room uh, where I was waiting with crisp white bed linen. But as I pressed my foot down on the accelerator, the final blow fell. A single figure was waiting by the side of the road. 
As we got closer to this last lonely figure, we could make out her white leggings, a white t-shirt, and bleached blonde hair. She was the last face to pass, the last eyes to ignore, the last bit of the city before the clean open road. But something wasn't right. Getting nearer, something about her seemed distorted, but what was it? Her proportions were all wrong. Her body was too small, her eyes were too big, and her face was too rounded. It was a fleeting thought, but as we zoomed past, my eyes caught hers, and in a moment of awful recognition, I recognized we were looking at a child, no more than 11 or 12 years old, hiding beneath heavy makeup. Speeding onward past this last lone girl onto the open road, we sighed with relief and breathed a little easier. This was no different from border towns the world over, and what could we do but put it behind us? Move on. But then came the familiar whisper and the equally familiar screams of protest within. If I could just ignore that voice another few miles. We need to go back. We need to go back and buy that kid an ice cream. (laughs) My wife looked at me incredulously. Didn't you see that mean-looking man in the car watching her? Probably her pimp. We have a car full of luggage, and in case you've forgotten, we have a baby, and he needs changing. She was right, and I was glad to be dissuaded. So we drove on, found a spot to eat, and we ate in silence. And in the quietness, God's whisper got louder. Maybe this was a defining moment. Tests like these aren't conveniently timed or comfortably offered. But when they come, our actions and responses say everything about us for weeks, months, or even years to come. I knew that if we drove away that day, a small, irredeemable part of me would feel like a hypocrite, unable to guarantee a different response the next time. I knew that an apology to God later that night would be too late. So we decided to go back, to find her, to buy her an ice cream, and let her be a kid for a minute. It was a meaningless, pointless thing to do, and it couldn't possibly change anything. But maybe that's how following God works. We want to fell impressive oak trees, and God just hands us an acorn and tells us to wait. As we forced ourselves to return, we discussed the best approach, agreeing at the end she would stay in the car with the baby and I would go alone. But back at the street, the girl vanished, and so we waited for her, but she didn't reappear. Another prostitute had taken her place, and we drove around looking, praying. The ice cream was beginning to melt as I parked the car, feeling really stupid, In my rearview mirror, I could see one of the many brothels, and there were two women outside. Maybe they would know where the girl was. My heart was racing as I stepped out of the car and began to walk to them, and I whispered, help me, Jesus, feeling clumsy and naive. The women were watching me, too, no doubt amused by my contraband. I reached them, and I asked if they spoke English, and they said, no, Dutch. Without a common language, it is impossible to ask them about the girl. But then as I wondered what to do, my heart began to melt like the ice cream in my hand. Up close, they seemed just like people living in a different world. It was no longer about the girl. It was now about these two people in front of me. And so with an insane grin, I handed the bouquet to to one girl and the heart-shaped chocolates to the other. And they giggled and they took the dripping ice cream too. Jesus loves you, I stammered in terrible German. Seeing the look of confusion on their faces, I repeated, Ah, one girl said, Love, love, yeah, 
She began to move to me. No, I exclaimed a little too quickly. Jesus, pointing to the sky, Jesus loves you. And I indicated each one of them. The expression on their faces slowly changed. They pointed up and then looked at their gifts and then back at me quizzically. The flirting had gone, and I wondered if they were smiling in a different way. I grinned back, and Sammy, who was watching from the car as I walked back, saw the girl smell the flowers, exchange a few incredulous words, and just begin to laugh. Driving away from this absurd encounter, we sensed that we had just prayed the kind of prayer that pleased God. In that moment, when they turned back around, they chose to live differently. Because living in the path of the will of God requires us to live differently than everyone else. The way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and you will be strengthened so you will have the endurance endurance and patience that you need. You know, following Jesus requires extra. It's hard. It's risky. Sometimes you look a little foolish or stupid. Jesus sometimes asks you to do things that are very uncomfortable. But Jesus doesn't pull any punches when he tells us that this is what we should expect. He, he tells us this. In John 16, he says, I've told you all this so you may have peace in me. Because here on earth, you're going to have trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. There's good news. Jesus has won. He's winning. He's actively moving in our world, in our lives. But there is difficulty here still now, because there's a battle going on. There's something coming against us. There's evil in our world. There's sin. There's brokenness. There's lots of stuff that's coming against us that we're fighting against. And we shouldn't be naive to that. But he gives us what we need. He gives us strength and patience and endurance. And you know, often I think that the biggest struggle isn't against external things but it's against the internal desire to actually keep trying. Because it's much easier to not try. It's much easier to just ignore. Pete could have just driven on, gone to their hotel or wherever they were going. I've done stuff like that. He could have been like, we're going to pray. Let's pause and pray right now. And then they pray in the car. And they do that thing. I've done that too. It's easier. Nobody's watching. I'm in my car. Nobody cares. So what if I look like I'm talking to myself? Who cares? Whatever. That's fine. He could have just kept going. It's easier to just stop trying. It's easier when your neighbor tells you that they might be losing their job to say, oh, that's, that's too bad, and then to keep going. It's easier to 
pretend like you didn't see your coworker's Facebook post about the diagnosis that their spouse just had and to just talk about work. It's easier to not try. It's easier to just avoid that part of town and not go there so you don't see it. <laughs> it's not there. I don't know what it is that you're talking about. It's easier to just not try. But Jesus gives us patience, endurance, and strength so that we can try. Because Jesus changes everything in our lives and we're called to live like him. We live like Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and in on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. He's also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift, drift away from the assurance that you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. There's an invitation in that for two groups of us to respond. The first group of us is those who were once far away. But now, today, you're aware of Jesus calling to you. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never gone close. You never got the full disease, like David Brooks said. Maybe it's been a while, and you feel him calling back to you. And what I want to do is just give a moment if that's you, for you just to raise your hand and then I just want to pray with you and invite Jesus to come and to move in your life right now. So if that's you and you're saying this morning, I know that I was once far away, but somehow Jesus is drawing me near. I just want to invite you just to raise your hand and then I'll pray with you. If you're sitting next to somebody you know and you, you need them to grab your hand to help you, give you a little extra. That's fine. Do that. Just raise your hand and then we'll pray. Just give us a moment.
Well, then for the rest of us, the invitation is pretty clear. It's not easier. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away. As the worship team comes on up, I just want to pray for us for the ways that we've drifted. For the ways that we've allowed ourselves to keep things like red vines poking out. Looking different. Not in judgment, but just saying, Jesus, I want all of you. I want my life to actually look like all of you. And so if you're willing to pray with me, just open up your hands and let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for the way that you move in our lives and bring change. Thank you that where you are, other things don't have space. That in some ways it is either you or something else. We, We can't coexist in both. And so Jesus, we just right now Just in our hearts, we repent for the things that we've allowed to stay. Just go ahead in your hearts, in your minds, just say whatever it is that, that you've allowed. It could be big, it could be small, it doesn't matter. God, we repent that we've allowed those things to remain. Today, we just give those up to you. And we ask for you to come and to fill us completely, form us completely. Let our lives reflect your will, your salvation plan. Let us be examples of what it looks like to be rescued and renewed and made whole by Jesus in every way. And I pray that you'll give us the strength and the endurance and the patience that we need to live this out, to live lives that are fruitful because we're we're actively taking the risk to not do the easy, but to live out your calling for us in our life, in the small ways and in the big ways. Give us courage to show your love to those around us to live our lives in ways that bring you honor and glory, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and your grace to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to worship.